powerful worship today. Would you agree? Thank you, Pastor Mark and worship leaders, for bringing us into the presence of God. I'll dismiss the little children, the little ones up through grade four. I know they're anxious to be with some wonderful adults who love them and who've been preparing to open God's Word to them. You see on your screen uh, the words and the graphic of our summer. Our theme for the 100 days of summer 2014 are the words choices because every single day all of us make choices. Those choices affect change in us, in our families, and in the people that our lives touch. That's because we live in connectivity with one another. No one lives in isolation. Often we have to make choices because other people made choices and those choices affected us even though they had nothing to do with us. Yesterday morning, at least where I live in Elkhorn, uh, the fog was so thick I couldn't see across the street. I know there was a house there, but I couldn't see it. This morning when I awakened, it was beautiful, crystal like it is now, but it didn't very, take very long and the fog rolled in. On Friday evening, Don and I had some friends over to the house and a couple of the men were saying the best time to ski on Geneva Lake is in the summer at 5 a.m. I saw the fog and I thought to myself, I wonder if they're out there skiing in the fog. And then I thought to myself, what would it be like to water ski behind a boat in the fog and you can't see the boat? Has anybody ever done that? I asked that in the first service and two guys raised their hand. And then as I thought about that, I thought, as I was praying over the message for today, God, are we living in a world, in a nation, in cities and towns where the fog is rolling in all around us and it's getting more and more difficult to see with clarity where are we going as a nation who are we as a people what is right what is wrong what is truth what can you trust is the fog rolling in if you are on the journey with us, the 100 days of summer, and you're reading along with us uh, two chapters of God's Word every day, this week you have come to the book of 1 Samuel. And let's look this morning at a little bit of the story of a man who was born at a very foggy time where God's people needed the answers that could only come from God's Word. As you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote something to people living in a city that was thick in the fog, Corinth. He wrote, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Oh, I can go out and ski in the fog if I want to, but <laughs> might not be the wisest thing to do. Now this from a man who was raised very legalistically. He measured his life, his success, by how right he was all the time according to the law until he encountered the risen Jesus and he experienced an outpouring of the grace of God in his life and everything changed. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Uh, John wrote uh, late in his life, uh, hmm, God is light. He's truth. In him there is no darkness, no fog, no uncertainty, no deceit. If we claim to have a relationship with God, fellowship with Him, but we walk in the fog, 
in the darkness, in the deceit, there's a problem. And the problem isn't with him. The problem's with me. I'm a liar. I'm not living by the truth. Two realities that I'd like to ask you to wrestle with this morning with me. Uh, first reality. What is it like when a person lives a, a high and holy regard for God? Does that person live his or her life elevating God, honoring God, bringing glory and honor to God? And what is it like if a person lives a low regard, a disregard for God? Does that person live a risky elevation of self because that person is pushing God out, marginalizing God, minimizing God? That's the fog that little Samuel was born into. 1 Samuel 1 tells us that he's one of those miracle boys that shouldn't have ever been born. But God heard the cry of a childless mother, Hannah. It tells me there in the first chapter, in the 10th verse, in the bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me. May I ask you, do you know anybody living in misery right now? You know anybody whose family is so miserable they don't want to go home after school? Any teenagers or kids like that? You know any adults who are living in a family and it's so miserable they'd rather not be at home? They'd rather not be in their marriage. They'd rather not be with their kids because it's painful, it's miserable. You know anyone living, my dear friends, in the misery of the shame and the grief of the past and it weighs upon them as they go through life? You know anybody living in the misery of there's just not enough in the checkbook at the end of the month? You know anybody living in the fear and the anxiety of the future and it's coming at them and they can see it and their knees are knocking? This dear woman was living in the misery of empty arms, praying to a God who she believed understood the pain of living in misery. Remember me. Do not forget your servant, but give her a son, and I'll give him to the Lord for all of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. A Nazarite vow. Her child would be dedicated entirely to God in his service. Verse 19, early in the morning they did a most amazing thing. Do you see what it says? They arose... Hannah and her husband, and they worshiped before the Lord. Have, have you ever worshiped out of a broken heart? You've walked into a church someplace or a little chapel, or, or maybe it was just by yourself sitting on a shoreline, but your heart was breaking and the tears were running down your face because life just hurt so much. But you chose to worship because you have a high and holy regard for God and you know that he's sovereign and you know that he's holy you know that he's majestic so even in the pain of your circumstances you chose to worship you remember what happened he responded didn't he Susan and all of us in this room who've done that and you felt the weight the heaviness of life begin to lift because God was responding to your choice to worship it was whispering in your ear I'm here I understand the pain I watched it happen. I know all about it. I'm here with you and I love you. Then they went back home to Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in the course of time, she conceived. <laughs> 
and she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because I asked the Lord for him. And after he was weaned, verse 24, she took the boy, young as he was, maybe about age four or so, and brought him back with her husband there to, to Shiloh, you'll remember. And, and they sacrificed and they thanked God, they worshiped. And she said to the high priest Eli, verse 27, I prayed for this child and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He'll be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And in my mind, I can see her after she gives that final hug, walking away, looking at her little boy. And my guess would be the tears just pouring out of her eyes. And if it was me saying, why, God, why? Do I really have to stand by the vow that I made? But look at the next verse. That's not how it happened. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart, what does it say? rejoices in the Lord. Do you see the high regard that she has for a holy God that she can trust in the time of pain? My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted up. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. For there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Amen? Can you say that in the pain, in the misery of your journey, my friends, because you are growing to know this great and holy God and you're living your life lifting him up acclaiming celebrating elevating him Mary the mother of Jesus had a prayer similar to that and I put a couple of the words of her prayer there in your notes my soul magnifies the Lord holy is his name so here's my question what do my life choices and the priorities of my life tell me and those who know me about my regard for God. Could I ask you to ponder that question? When you look at the choices that you've made in your life, especially recently, when you look at the priorities of your life and how you live your life according to those priorities, what does it tell us about how you regard God and where He fits in your life? Now at the end of her prayer, it says in verse 11 of chapter 2, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? And that's where the second statement comes from that you see on the screen and in your notes. There are people who have a low regard or no regard, a disregard for God. And when they live that way, they elevate themselves pridefully because they pushed God out. You know what that does? It causes the fog to roll in. Because when we stop elevating and honoring and celebrating God, the fog rolls in. The fog of pride, the fog of selfishness. The vacuum of pushing God out is filled by a deadly fog. And it happened here, verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. For they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Verse 22, now Eli, their daddy, was very old, and he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting, defiling the very place of worship with gross immorality. So he said to his sons, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. 
If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against God, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. Do you see any evidence of that in our nation? Places where choices are being made intentionally, not just to push God out, but to, in a sense, in your face, God. Not only do we not want you here, we don't want anything to do with you here. And we will choose to do whatever we can to humiliate you, blaspheme you. You see any evidence of that? You see the fog rolling in? End of verse 30, God says, Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Verse 35, God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. And that priest will do according to what is in my heart and mind. And that was, of course, the little boy, Samuel. Chapter 3, of course, gives us that remarkable story of that encounter where Samuel met God for the first time. The little boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under uh, the influence, the mentorship, the coaching, the guidance of Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was very rare, not many visions. And one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. I wonder what that means. Did he have a little bed someplace in a corner of the tabernacle? Or maybe there was a little shelter outside the tabernacle. But do you see what it says next? The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And little Samuel was lying down in the temple of the tabernacle where the ark of God was. I love that. That tells me that the little boy, probably age four, five, six, has now found and placed his little sleeping mat at night as close to the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place as he possibly could, as close to the presence of God. Do you see what I see there? A little boy that has a hunger to know God in spite of the fact that he's living under the influence of men who are pushing God out and rejecting God. My dear wife, Dawn, loves to work with four- and five-year-olds. Uh, that's why she's not here in this service. She's teaching your children if you have a four- and five-year-old. Why? Because they have little hungry hearts that just absorb as much as they can about Jesus, about God's truth. That was little Samuel. Eli's sons had long grown bored with God. They were sleeping with women at the entrance to the tabernacle. Do you see the contrast between a little boy who, who doesn't even know God yet but wants to lift him up and acclaim him and two grown men who should be the spiritual leaders who have a very low regard of God and are defiling him right there in the tabernacle. It tells us there, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli. Yes, sir, you called me. Eli's rubbing his eyes saying, what? I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. Goes back and lays down. But I have a feeling his eyes are big as donuts. Samuel, Samuel, yes sir, Eli, you called me. Kid, you're bothering me. I didn't call you. Go back and lay down. Goes back and lays down. Maybe he doesn't even lay down. Maybe he just sits there. Samuel, goes back a third time. Finally, the light went on. And Eli says to the little boy, son, it's possible that you're hearing what I haven't heard in a long, long time. If the voice calls your name again, you say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And then listen with all your might. 
Samuel. It says, in fact, there, do you see it? Verse 10, the Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel and God had an encounter, and God spoke into Samuel some dreadful truth about the judgment that he was going to have to pour out on Eli and his sons because of their low regard for God. But that God was going to raise up Samuel to be the leader the nation would need. And so it tells us in verse 21, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. That would be the Torah scroll, and probably the book of Joshua, and maybe more. Little Samuel, evidently, my friends, had a hunger to know God and knew that here's where you find out about God. How much of a hunger do you have to know God? What does your Bible look like? Pastor Gillespie said a couple of weeks ago, I know you like to mark in your Bible, Pastor Doug, but that's just still hard for me. So when you look in my Bible, there's not a lot of notes there, but I got boxes of notes (laughs) that I've written in my study of God's Word. We don't measure our spirituality but by how marked up is our Bible. But is your fingerprint on every page of your Bible? Have you come to know that if you want to know God, here's His letter to you. If you want to hear the voice of God and hear his, Him speaking into your life journey, here's where He speaks to you. Have you discovered that? How do you measure the hunger that you have for what he wants to say to you. That's where little Samuel was. Do you see the contrast between Eli's sons and little Samuel? Israel goes to war, as they were doing all the time, and they lost a battle against the Philistines in chapter 4, and verse 3 says, When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders, the leaders of Israel, gathered together and said, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today? Hey, I got an idea. Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant out of the tabernacle from Shiloh and let's take it out to battle with us and maybe it'll save us. Verse 4, So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who's enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Unbelievable. They took the ark out of the tabernacle, out of the holy place, and took it onto the battlefield as though it's some kind of a good luck charm, a a, a new weapon of war. You see, when you have a low regard for God, you have a low regard for everything about God, including the worship of God and the word of God, the presence of God, the power of God. You push it all out. Isn't that true? And into the vacuum comes, it's all about me. And whatever idea I have must be a good idea, certainly better than any idea God would have. Verse 10, So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 soldiers. The ark of God was captured. Think about that. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed. A runner left the battlefront and ran back to tell Eli, verse 17. The man who brought the news said, Eli fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair. His neck was broken, and he died. His daughter-in-law, verse 9, the wife of Phineas was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were both dead, she went into labor and gave birth. 
But she was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel. I have a question I have to ask. It's a hard question. It's a painful question. Is the glory of God departing from the United States of America? In politics, in business, in education, in health care, in the care of the elderly, in the protection of the unborn, in entertainment, is the glory of God being pushed out so that we are approaching Ichabod? Is it possible that the greatest missionary sending nation of all time is now the nation where the world is saying, we better get some missionaries over there. They're dying in America. Yes, it's possible. Yes, it's possible. How does it happen? It happens in a drift. It happens in an increasing low regard for God. It happens when God just fits into our lives when it's convenient or when we need something. May I tell you in honesty that as Don and I left our home this morning, the fog was really rolling in. We live north of Elkhorn. We drive along the Walworth County Fairgrounds when we come to church. And there are some Sundays when we can't come that way because the cars are lined up in every direction as far as you can see. And there are signs out that say antique sales, craft sales at 6.30 in the morning on a Sunday. So I had to ask my dear wife as we were driving in, I wonder, will there be some folks today who, it's pretty foggy, it's pretty dangerous, it'd be wiser to stay home. And I would understand that. But would there be some folks if there was a craft sale? <laughs> I don't see any fog. Do you see fog? <laughs> now, please don't hear that as a rebuff against crafts and knickknacks. We love them in our home. Understand what I'm saying, please. The fog is rolling in. Do you see it? And it's rolling in by invitation as we as a nation push God out. Ichabod is not far away. Have any of you ever been in a nation where there is no God? Where God is against the law? Where God has been forcibly pushed out by the nation? It's a very, very dark, dreadful place to be. Are we moving toward Ichabod? In the fifth and sixth chapter, you may remember in 1 Samuel the ark was in enemy hands for seven months and God sent judgment and finally they said oh we got to get this thing out of here and they built a new cart the two cows that had calfed but had never been yoked together they separated them and they hooked them up and said okay go and those two cows led that cart back with the ark of God on it to a place called Bet Shemesh I've stood there in Israel the Israelites received it back with great joy chopped up the cart built an altar sacrificed to the cows celebrated the ark was back but instead of taking it to Shiloh and putting it back into the tabernacle they took it into a man's house named Abinadab in Kiriath Yeharim and chapter 7 says it was there a long time verse 2 20 years in all that the ark remained in Kiriath Yeharim and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord do you see my friends that this fog this Ichabod was now throughout the whole nation of Israel 20 years in that dark place. 
But something was stirring, and they were crying out, saying, Help us, God. So Samuel said in verse 3, he stood, and he said, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Astoris. Do you see what that says? That says that God's people had in their homes idols that they were worshiping of the foreign peoples around them. God's people. Now, none of you have any idols in your houses. Or do we? An idol is simply anything that takes priority in your heart, in the choices and the decisions that you make. So what has captured the passion of your heart? It's not hard to tell. It's where we spend our time. It's where we spend our money. It's where we'll do whatever we need to do in order to achieve that which we're pursuing. So what has captured your heart? God's people. God had very low esteem among them in these days. But they knew it wasn't right, and the fog was all around them, and they were saying, we've got to change this. So Samuel says, here's how you do it. We rid ourselves of the things that are separating us from God. We commit ourselves to the Lord. We consecrate ourselves to Him to serve Him only. He will then deliver us out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals, the asterisks. They served the Lord only. Samuel said, let's come together and worship. I'll intercede for you. And on that day they fasted and they confessed, we've sinned against the Lord. Revival was coming to God's people. They were leaving Ichabod behind. And they were moving back to a place, a place of reunion with God, restoration with God, cleansing with God. The Philistines heard about it and said, oh, they're vulnerable. Let's attack them now while they're worshiping. They said to Samuel, please keep interceding. Cry out to the Lord for us. And he did. This past week around here, we had thunderstorms, serious thunderstorms. A couple of days, it shook my house up in Elkhorn. Physically, I could feel it shaking, that low rumbling. And it says right here, do you see it? <laughs> the end of verse 10, that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into a panic. I understand that. Samuel, verse 12, took a stone and set it up there at Mizpah, and he called it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again, and throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Question. Do you see the contrast between Ichabod, that dark, dreadful place where the glory of God is left, and Ebenezer? Thus far the Lord has helped us. We've been restored and returned. Do you see the contrast between the two? Now please watch this carefully. Because you and I are living, breathing human beings. We are not stagnant. We're not frozen in time and, and place. Because God's given us brains to think and place them in our skulls. And we are inundated with information constantly, day and night. More than we can comprehend. We're always thinking. We're always making choices. We're always moving. And we're either moving toward Ichabod because we're pushing God out or we're moving toward Ebenezer, one or the other. No standing still. Our hearts, our emotions, being captured by the people and the things all around us, we're either drifting down toward Ichabod as our hearts are being drawn into those dark places or we're rejecting that and we're moving toward Ebenezer as we remove the things that grab our hearts and separate us from God. It's one or the other all the time. So are you courageous enough right now to look at the mirror 
Where am I at this moment? What do the footsteps of this last week show me? Am I drifting toward Ichabod? Or am I moving toward Ebenezer? And what about my marriage, if you're married in this room? What about my family and my children? My grandchildren? It's one way or the other. It's not stationary. It's not stagnant. When Samuel grew old, <laughs> chapter 8, verse 1, you see, for his whole life, he then led Israel. But he grew old. He had two sons. He named them to be judges. But verse 3 says, they did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. What happens when you're disappointed by Christian people that you thought you could trust? That's what's happening here. People are saying, Samuel, we respect you. You've been a good leader, but your sons, they're not the same. They're disappointing us. How do you respond when you're disappointed by Christian people who should know better? So, appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. Wow. What is it about the fog that attracts us? Can you ask yourself that question? Because we've all been there. We've all found ourselves attracted by the fog. What is it about that? That when you're living in a good place, in a, in a pure and wonderful relationship with God, that other stuff draws you. Can you look deeply enough in yourself to see why are you vulnerable to that attraction? When Samuel heard this, he was brokenhearted, so he prayed, verse 6, to the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you that they're rejecting, it's me. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you, Samuel. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Why is it we so easily forget God had said to his people there and here, you are my treasured possession. I love you. I've purchased you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is that not enough? Why do we find ourselves drawn into the fog? Samuel explained it to the people. You're drifting. You're going back toward that Ichabod place. Don't go there. But look what they say in verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then, now I wonder if God put his fingers in his ears, if I could say it that way, not wanting to hear the next statement they were about to make because it's so unbelievable. Then we will be like all the other nations. But the reason Jesus came is so that we're not like all the other nations, so we don't live in the fog, right? We want a king because we want to be like everybody else. God's design for you and for me is to be so different from everybody else. I want to suggest to you that he's called us to live shalom. Shalom, may I suggest, is best understood by a little phrase in 1 Peter. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. God's called us to live in this broken world as a people who bring God's grace, his love, into a broken-hearted world. 
to be a people who bring God's peace into a confused, distorted, angry, violent world. How do we do that? We do that by experiencing His grace and His peace and then living it out by living, exalting Him. We do it by understanding that Peter writes, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God. Live that to the fullest. We do it by understanding that Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Retard the decay. Preserve the pure. Flavor the world. We do it by understanding Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Penetrate the darkness like a searchlight. Push back the darkness by turning on the lights of truth, God's truth, and of living God's truth in a dark world. You are the aroma of Christ. Be the fragrance of Jesus amidst the smell of death in our world. You are ambassadors. You're you're ambassadors, representatives of Jesus Christ as though God is making his appeal through you, 2 Corinthians 5. We do it lastly by hearing Jesus say, love one another as I have loved you because you're living in a very broken, unloving world and most people around you have never experienced unconditional love. Love one another as I loved you. Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. We invited it upon ourselves because we had low regard for God and we kept pushed him out. Nothing is left but the darkness of the absence of God. Ebenezer, thus far the Lord has helped us. We have repented and turned away. We removed the things that were defiling us and separating us from God. We're in that place of worship and adoration, exalting him. It's one or the other. Which way are you going? Parents, grandparents, are we helping our children understand that the fog is rolling in? Are we helping them understand how to find their way in the fog? and how to discern at any given moment in time that step they just took is that a step toward Ichabod or a step toward Ebenezer, huh? Do we have any greater obligation as parents and grandparents with our children and grandchildren than that? In closing, I want you to meet a man from India. Brother Craig, would you come please? He's visiting us just today. Lives in the northern part of India. You have a passion for India, Brother Craig. And uh, what, tell us, what is God doing there in this Ichabod-Ebenezer battle? And how can we pray for Brother Sam? Thank you. Well, India is a place that is a Hindu nation. 80% of the people there are Hindu. And so there's a lot of idol worship. They worship 300 million gods there. Um, and it's a very difficult place uh, to do the work of the gospel. And uh, just recently, the, the new prime minister... Uh, that was elected as leader of India is a Hindu radical. And uh, so we're not sure. It's, uh, it's looking like it's going to become more and more difficult to do the work of the gospel in India. Mm. And Pastor Sam is uh, the brother that I work with there in the northern part of India. He touches uh, not only India, but also uh, Nepal and Bhutan and that whole northern region. 
And he's working with 40 different church planters to help train them and equip them for the work of the ministry. Mm. And that's, that's what I do. I, I come alongside men like Pastor Sharma and other church planters to help them do the work of the gospel. Mm. Uh, they know the language, they know the culture, mm. and they can reach their people. How can we most effectively pray for Pastor Sam and the work there in the northern rim of India? Well, let, I'm going to let him answer that one okay. for you. Well, um, uh, we are called to reach the unreached in different parts of that region. We are connected. We are in a, in a next site, like a Bangladesh, Burma, Bhutan, Nepal, Northeast India, Tibet, and it's very strategic place. We have started our ministry since long back, but the Lord has given us a vision to train as many people who could go and reach the unreached of that region. And we have been praying for a training center there. Uh, God has given us a land, and we are praying to have, a, have our own building to train the people Amen. Uh, so that uh, we can do more than that we are doing now. Amen. Pastor Sam, we're glad you're there. We're glad you responded to God's call in your life. We will be praying with you Thank and you, for Pastor. you. We're glad that our brother Craig, one of our elders here at Calvary, is partnering with you. Thank you so would you join me in praying right now together for Pastor Sam? God, we thank you for what you are doing in India and other parts of the world like India. We thank you for courageous men like Sam who have responded to your call. He's probably named after the man we've been studying this morning, Samuel. And God, thank you for the way that you are using he and the men he's training to penetrate the darkness, to lead people from those places of Ichabod to the places of celebrating the risen Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Please, God, would you continue to guide them and bless them and protect them and provide for them. Thank you for our brother Craig and his passion for the unreached of the world, especially in India and Bhutan and those areas. Now, God, thank you for the way you've spoken into our hearts. And as we worship you now, drawing our time to a close this morning, and then you send us out into our world, God, please, please would you awaken in us like you did in Samuel, a passion to know you, to recognize when we're drifting toward Ichabod, to make the turn and to move, take the steps necessary to move toward Ebenezer, to be the people like Samuel was, who can push back the darkness by the power of God at a strategic time. We worship you now, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.